originally planned on us discussing spiritual gifts today, but we're going to delay that for a couple more weeks just because of the attention that we've been placing on studying God's Word and making that a priority in our life. I didn't want to jump to a new topic so quickly when I felt like we're still trying to make sure that we're applying this the way that we want to. And so we're going to spend the next two weeks kind of wrapping that discussion up, um, and then we'll have the pool party at Anna's, and then we'll get into our doctrinal discussion each week for this summer. I told you that for the summer, we're going to try to tackle a different doctrine every week or every couple of weeks um, as we move through the summer before we get back into studying a book of the Bible together. So we'll continue to talk about the importance of God's Word in our life today and next week. I I shared with you already that next week we're going to look at an overview of all 27 books of the New Testament so that you can better understand what they are about, what they're seeking to teach, so that hopefully you can get some guidance on which book of the Bible to start studying. Not that studying the Old Testament books is not a good idea, but... Um, for those that maybe don't have a consistent study time or are looking to take it to the next level as far as depth of study, New Testament books are probably a little bit easier to start with. So we'll focus our attention on um, overview of the New Testament individual books next week. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we had been discussing once again discipleship, uh, what it means to make disciples, and the goal of discipleship here at Sovereign Hope Church. We said that Discipleship defined here at this church is the process by which a Christian with a life worth emulating commits himself for an extended period of time to a few individuals who have been won to Christ, the purpose being to aid and guide their growth to maturity and equip them to reproduce themselves in a third spiritual generation. So our goal here for discipleship is that mature believers are pouring themselves into young believers, helping to uh, grow them to spiritual maturity with the purpose of of equipping them to then pour themselves into somebody else. So that's kind of what discipleship we want it to look like here at this church. We defined a disciple, like this is when you know that you have discipled somebody to the point of being a disciple, uh, when there's someone who uh, is joyfully striving to bring glory to God by faithfully living in a fallen world while anxiously waiting for the return of Jesus Christ our Lord. It's someone who is joyful in their life, content in their life. They're living faithfully and holy in the midst of a sinful culture, and they are waiting anxiously for Jesus to return. It's someone who has learned to turn from sin, serve others, and wait for their Lord. The goal of discipleship here at Sovereign Hope is to anchor individuals in the faith, train them to pursue Christ in a personal relationship, equip them to teach others to do the same. So we talked about Um, seeking to disciple people to where we can get them to a post-discipleship relationship. So we're wanting to take young believers, establish a foundation for them to build their faith on, and teach them how to grow themselves, essentially. That we don't want to pair somebody up with a new believer and that relationship be something that just lasts forever in the same context as when it first starts. So if Dave comes to Christ, he's a new Christian, um, Topi starts discipling him, we want that discipleship process to kind of have an end in sight, that Dave becomes a disciple that can learn and grow on his own and isn't always relying on somebody else to teach him God's word. So we describe that as a post-discipleship relationship. When you've taught somebody how to study God's word and grow on their own, then you continue to hang out with that person for encouragement You act as a sounding board for what they're learning, um, and you transition to having them teach somebody else. Uh, You help them continue to guide guide and hold them accountable to growing on their own. So that's where we're wanting to go as a church. We're wanting to make sure that everybody in our church is equipped to grow on their own. We're kind of wanting to clean up the discipleship process here. We want people to be mature in our church, growing on their own, studying the Bible on their own. So that as we start these new ministries and hopefully people come to Christ because of those ministries and come into our church and they're baby Christians, that our church is full of mature Christians that can disciple them to maturity as well. We call it the meet to meet campaign. We want to meet with individuals in our church to teach them how to meet or how to eat the meat of Scripture. We looked at uh, both Paul and Peter and their discussions on how we have a responsibility to move from eating the milk of the word to eating the meat of the word, to get to the point of spiritual maturity. We'll be talking more about that again uh, next week. Um, Essentially, we want people to be reading, 
interpreting what they're reading, evaluating it, applying it, and teaching it to others. It does no good if we read the scriptures and don't understand it. You'll remember in the New Testament, the book of Acts, uh, Philip comes upon the Ethiopian eunuch in the desert. The guy is faithfully reading the book of Isaiah. But Philip asks him, he says, do you know what you're reading? And the Ethiopian eunuch says, no, unless somebody tells me how to do this, I don't understand the Bible. I don't understand how to study it. I don't understand how to read it. And so Philip explained to him how to understand the book of Isaiah. And so it's kind of the essence of discipleship here at Sovereign Hope. We want to teach people how to read and understand scripture on their own so they can be faithfully growing on their own. To help with that process, I wanted us to um, look at some... Uh, information about how we got the Bible. Um, I think that's important as we try to study the Bible to understand where we got it from, um, how we can trust that it truly is God's word so that we can study it knowing that it comes directly from God. And then I wanted to give you a overview of Scripture and what Scripture tries to uh, teach us from Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation um, just so we can understand the flow of God's word. A lot of you, this is stuff that you'll know but it's stuff that you need to know in such a way that you can explain it to somebody else. Um, you know, Tyson recently shared about leading uh, Gabe to Christ at church. Gabe doesn't have the same uh, foundation, doesn't have the same background as a lot of us growing up in church. And so uh, there's a lot that he doesn't know about the Bible. And there's things that it, it's helpful to know about Scripture so that as you sit down to study it, you can connect how this fits into the overall flow of God's Word. A quote by R.C. Sproul, he says, We fail in our duty to study God's word not so much because it's difficult to understand, not so much because it's dull and boring, but because it is work. Our problem is not a lack of intelligence or a lack of passion. Our problem is that we are lazy. We want to move from being lazy about studying God's word and being faithful to study God's word. We can understand it. We're equipped with the Holy Spirit to understand it. We can find time in our schedule to do it. It may take a little bit of work, may take a little bit of effort, but we can find time in our schedule to study God's Word. It's just a matter of are we going to move from the laziness of not doing it to the passion of saying, I'm going to work hard to study God's Word. In your notes today, some facts about the Bible. There are 66 total books written by 40 authors. Written in how many languages? The original manuscripts. Three. Three. And that's not one of them. <laughs> There's the Hebrew, the Greek, and the Aramaic. There's a few passages in the Old Testament that are written in Aramaic. Uh, not a whole lot, um, but there are a few passages uh, in Daniel and Ezra specifically that are written in Aramaic. So technically three different languages. Um, and it covers about 1,500 years of history. So from the time that it's written to the time that they stop writing is about 1,500 years. Um, we know that Moses is the first to start penning scripture. Um, Job is, is an early book that's written um, as well um, that, that relates things that are going on in, in the early part of creation. Um, and I'm going to pass out to you a handout here in a few minutes that groups God's word chronologically. Because the Bible does not flow chronologically with the way that we have our uh, books organized. They are organized more by type of writing. So you've got the poetic books, the history books, the prophetic books. All those are grouped together. They don't flow chronologically. But I'm going to give you a chart that helps you see how the books flow when they happened kind of thing. Um, the major theme of Scripture. This is my one sentence for what the Bible's about. And it's the same definition that I use for the gospel. It's God's plan to save man from his sin through Christ for his glory forever. It's God's plan to save man from his sin through Christ for his glory forever. Scripture describes things that happened before time began. There's uh, there's stuff about God's foreknowledge, predestination, um, his providence, things that happened before we were ever created. And then we have it going all the way to our glorification where we spend eternity with Christ. So before time began, all the way into eternity, the Bible describes for us God's plan to save man 
through Christ for his glory forever. So the Bible is essentially the gospel and how it unfolds through time. Um, it starts with God revealing himself in the Garden of Eden, and then he progressively reveals his plan all through the Old Testament and then into the New Testament. So what I mean by that is God's plan becomes more and more clear as we work through the Bible. Um, so in the New Testament, people didn't fully understand God's plan of saving people through Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus has to explain to those disciples on the road to Emmaus that the Old Testament points to him, that the Old Testament is all about him. So God progressively reveals himself from Genesis all the way to Revelation. So we would expect that living in the time that we do in the church age, we have far more understanding about God's revelation than people that were following him faithfully in the Old Testament. So it's a progressive revelation where we get more and more of God's plan as more and more of Scripture was written. Now, in your notes there, the canon. The canon is what we refer to uh, when we're talking about our books of the Bible. So the canon is the list of books accepted by the early church as God's word. It's the list of books accepted by the early church as God's word. The word canon actually means um, a straight rod for measuring. So a, a type of ruler is what they would have used a canon for. Um, so this is the word that's used because it's the measurement, it's the standard for what it means to be God's word. And so we refer to our books of the Bible, the 66 books, as the canon, the list of books accepted by the early church. Now, Scripture gives us indication as to how we received God's word. Tyson taught us from Second uh, Timothy last week, verse or chapter 3, verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God. And then in 2 Peter 1. Verse 20, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So we know that God's word came to us by God. Through his Holy Spirit, he inspired different writers to write his word. Now, at times, God dictates his word. At times, there are individual men who are writing down God's word, word for word, from him. But the majority, I would say, is God using an author to pen his words, but he uses the personality the experiences and the knowledge of that author to write. That's why Paul's writings sound different than Peter's writings, because God did not dictate first and second Thessalonians to Paul. First and second Peter were not dictated to Peter. Otherwise, they would sound exactly the same. But you can read something written by Peter and say, this isn't Paul writing it. That's why some people say that Hebrews was wrote, was written by Paul. But if you've studied Paul enough, you kind of look at the book of Hebrews and you say, I don't know, this doesn't really sound like Paul in the way he typically writes. So God used personalities of the authors of Scripture. He allowed that to come out in their writings, but there were times when he dictated the actual words. But together, both of those could count, both of those scenarios, they were inspired by the Holy Spirit. So what they wrote was God's word, even though it came out in their own personality. Scripture teaches us that, that God breathed it out, that he came upon holy men and used the Holy Spirit to write his word. I put a note here that the early church, and this is, sometimes the Bible gets criticized by people that don't believe the Bible because they say that a bunch of people sat around and decided to make letters and books into God's word. But the early church did not give divine authority to human writings. Instead, they recognized divine authorship in books and letters that already had the quality. What I mean by that is that the, there weren't councils that sat around and decided that something was God's word and wasn't. And then all of a sudden it became God's word. A good illustration for it is people that are trained to identify counterfeit money. They don't determine what is and isn't money, and then all of a sudden it becomes genuine money. They are trained to see what is not money, what is not genuine currency, and what already has that characteristic, what already is genuine money. Does that make sense? So these people that sat around at times in early church history, they were able to determine what already possessed the quality of being God's word. They did not make certain letters into God's word. 
They were able to determine what wasn't and what was based on what already had the quality of being inspired by the Holy Spirit. The Old Testament. Reasons that we believe we have the complete Old Testament. Because as we challenge you guys to, to study God's word on your own, one question that comes up a lot of times by skeptics is, what, what if we're missing some of the Bible? What if we're missing some books? What if some books haven't been discovered and, and they radically alter our understanding of who God is and how salvation works? So I want us to look at why we believe that we have the entire Bible. So as Jesse starts to work through, what am I going to study? He doesn't have to wonder, is this everything? Or, or are we still waiting on parts of Scripture to be discovered? Reasons that we believe the Old Testament is complete. First of all, the 39 books contained in our Old Testament is the same list accepted by early Jewish leaders. The 39 books that we have are the same books that were accepted by early Jewish leaders. Meaning that in the Old Testament... When the Old Testament was finished, they had all 39 books and they believed that was all there was. They weren't looking for missing books. Now, the way they broke them up was different. So they didn't have actually 39 books. They combined some of the books. So if you, if you do some research, you, you may see that maybe there's a list of 22 Old Testament books. or I think there's another list of 27 Old Testament books. It's not that, that we found more books later on. It's that they combined some of those minor prophets into one book. Okay, I think Jeremiah was combined with maybe Lamentations in one of the lists that I was looking at. Okay, So the, the books, the content that we have is the exact same content that the early Jewish leaders had. Okay, uh, Secondly, Jesus and New Testament authors quote from the Old Testament a lot. Approximately 295 times, if you want to jot that down. So, in the New Testament, Jesus talking, Paul talking, Peter talking, New Testament writers talking. They quote the Old Testament 295 times. Not one time do they cite a statement that we don't have in our Old Testament. When they do quote something that we don't have in our Old Testament, they're not using it from a divine authority standpoint. So, for example... Um, in Jude 14 and 15, uh, he quotes the book of First Enoch. And then Paul quotes some different Greek authors in Acts 17 and Titus 1. But these aren't quoted uh, with phrases like God says or Scripture says or it's written. So they don't quote those extra biblical sources and give divine authority to them. Is that, do you see the difference? Like they're quoting secular, like extra biblical writings, like I might would quote a John MacArthur book up here on a Sunday morning. There's, there's me quoting scripture, that's divine authority. I may bring in another book, another source that has good truth in it, but not call it God's word. So every time a New Testament author cites, the, uh, cites something that is uh, coming from God, we have that in our Old Testament. So there's not any statements by Jesus where Jesus quotes something and we're like, ah, we don't really have that. Like, we don't know what book that came from. Like, we have all that stuff. 295 times we've got that stuff. Okay? Um, the, the discussion that comes up here is why don't we use the Apocrypha? The Apocrypha is a collection of books that's tacked on to the end of the Old Testament in some Bibles. Anybody have a Bible at home that has the Apocrypha in it? Okay? Uh, this got attached later on when the um, Old Testament was translated into Greek. We call that the Septuagint. It was tacked on to the Septuagint. Okay, The Apocrypha, the book of Maccabees, uh, a lot of it contains history that happens during those uh, silent years between Malachi and Matthew. That's when those books were written. It gives us a lot of Jewish history of what happened during that time. Now, we believe God was silent during those years, and so we don't use the Apocrypha. And I want to give you a couple reasons for why we don't. First of all, the Apocrypha is never quoted by Jesus or any other author in Scripture. We would expect that if God wanted us to understand, hey, these books belong there, that he would have sovereignly overseen and made sure that Jesus quoted from those books. Or at least another New Testament author would have quoted from the Apocrypha. And it's it's alarmingly silent, like no quotes from the Apocrypha. 
The Apocrypha was not regarded as God's word by Jewish people when it was written. It was not regarded as God's word by Jewish people when it was written. And then third, the Apocrypha contains inconsistent teachings with the rest of Scripture. There's inconsistent teachings there in the Apocrypha in comparison to the rest of Scripture. There's things like salvation by works. Um, Some of it implies that the creation of the world came from pre-existing matter. We believe that God created everything out of nothing. Uh, It implies that giving money is a way to make up for some of our sin. Uh, The prayers of the dead are heard by God. That type of thing. Things that we don't find in, in the rest of the Old or New Testament. So we don't include the Apocrypha in, in God's Word. So if I sit down with you and say, hey, what do you want to study? What do you want to be involved in? Don't tell me First and Second Maccabees because that's, that's not cutting it. I mean, if you want to read that stuff and study that stuff, that's great. But that's not time in the Word. That's not time studying God's Word. It's not profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. All right, the New Testament I want to give you some of the criteria that was used when trying to gather the books of the New Testament. Because, you know, looking at First and Second Thessalonians, we saw that there were letters that were being circulated and they were supposedly signed by Paul and Paul was having to refute that stuff. So uh, a lot of false teachers had picked up on the fact that this is how the church believes that God's communicating, that he's writing letters to them from some of these apostles. So some people jumped on that and started pinning other stuff that we don't include in our New Testament. So what was the criteria used? Talking about those guys like sitting down to determine is it counterfeit money or is it real money? What was the criteria they used to determine what was God's word and what wasn't God's word? First of all, when books were gathered for our New Testament, it was determined that it must have divine authorship characteristics. It must have divine authorship characteristics. Meaning it had to, it had to feel like it came from God. There had to be evidence that, that this is from God based on the person that wrote it. Divine authorship characteristics. Most of the New Testament was written by the apostles. Most of the New Testament was written by the apostles. These were the disciples who, who witnessed the resurrection of Jesus, who saw the resurrected Jesus. That was a criteria for being an apostle. It was written by the apostles, the New Testament. The books not written by the apostles were written by those closely associated with the apostles. So if the book was written by somebody that wasn't an apostle, it was somebody who was really good friends with an apostle that probably wrote it for that apostle. Example uh, being Gospel of Mark. Okay, we, we saw this morning Mark's not a disciple of Jesus. He's not an apostle. But he was closely related, close friends with Peter. So a lot of people believe that Mark is actually Peter's perspective on the life of Jesus. So that's why it's accepted into our New Testament. Because Mark, while he's not an apostle, was closely associated with Peter. Um, and so because of that friendship with Peter, it's seen as something that God would use in communicating his divine revelation. Uh, The Gospel of Luke and Acts, Luke was closely associated with Paul. Uh, Jude, um, brother of Jesus. Now, the book of Hebrews is one that um, we don't don't know who the author is. Um, We're not really sure who wrote it. It doesn't identify an author. There's different perspectives out there as far as who wrote it. A lot of people believe that Paul wrote it. Uh, other people believe that Apollos wrote it, who's mentioned in Acts. Anybody heard of anybody else that maybe wrote Hebrews? Those are the two that I'm most familiar with. Luke, you've heard? Okay. Um, what was determined was this book's so good, it doesn't really matter who wrote it. It's, it's that good. It's definitely God's word. Because of the high value, the high perspective that's presented about Jesus, um, it was identified very early that, no, we don't know exactly who wrote it, but clearly somebody wrote it that knew Jesus, that knew him very closely. Maybe an apostle wrote it. Maybe somebody really close to an apostle wrote it, but they got it right when they wrote it. And so it's been accepted from early on in the New Testament. But that's the one exception as far as we can't identify exactly who wrote it. We can't say that an apostle wrote it or somebody close to it 
uh, for sure, but it definitely seems that way. Number two, it must have been recognized by the early church as scripture. That's the second criteria. It had to be accepted early on by the church as scripture. So they weren't adding books to the New Testament later on. It was something that the early church was identifying quickly. Even the apostles were helping to identify what was scripture and what wasn't scripture because We've talked, too, about the fact that Paul wrote other letters that didn't end up in the New Testament. We don't have them, or we don't have them in our New Testament. And so um, it was clear that the early church identified what was inspired and what wasn't inspired pretty early on. In Second Peter 3, we see even Peter referencing some of Paul's writings and calling it Scripture. Uh, it says in verse 15 of Second Peter 3, Count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our own beloved Brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. This is strong evidence for Paul's writings in the New Testament being on the same level as Old Testament scriptures. Because Peter is saying, hey, people like to, tr to twist what Paul writes just like they do other scriptures. So, Peter is lumping Paul's writings into the other scripture category. He's saying, just like people twist the Old Testament, they twist Paul's writings, just like they do other scriptures. So he's identifying Paul's writings as scriptures uh, here very early in the church. Number three, it must contain teachings consistent with the rest of scripture. It must contain teachings that are consistent with the rest of scripture. Now, I, I debated on how much detail to really go into how was the Bible put together. Um, there, there's a lot of stuff that's been written. Um, people take classes on this type of thing, like how the, how the Bible was put together, how those councils went down, what that looked like. A lot of people need that information to be assured of the fact that God's word is God's word. I'm the type that I don't really need that information. Like, I'm not reliant on fully understanding how all those councils functioned to put our Bible together. So I've studied that before. I don't stay really refreshed on it enough to be able to talk as authoritatively as I would want to about it. Here's the reasons that I've kind of jotted down for why I don't doubt whether we have all of God's word or not. And it's not because I've thoroughly studied how the Bible was put together. It's because of my belief and trust and faith in who God is and how important God's word is to him. So can we know for sure we have all the right books? First, God was faithful to reveal his plan in times past. We can trust he's still faithful today. He's faithful to reveal his plans in times past. We can trust that he's still faithful today. John fourteen twenty six says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. So Jesus says, I'm concerned about you remembering everything that I taught you. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to make sure that stuff gets written down. So Jesus was very conscious of the fact that the New Testament needed to be written, specifically the four Gospels. And so he makes sure to tell the disciples, I'm going to send the helper to make sure that you remember everything that I want you to remember. John 14, 26. So as a believer, as a Christian, and when I sit down and look at the Bible and, and questions come to my mind of, wow, do we have the entire New Testament? Do we have the Old Testament? Are we missing books? Do we still need to go out and excavate and, and uh, look for other books like do we need to be like exploring and trying to find these hidden books that maybe give us deeper information about salvation i say no because i believe that jesus was very concerned about us getting his word into our hands he said i'm going to send the holy spirit to make sure this happens secondly we know that god is serious about a correct canon god has told us in scripture that he is serious he's concerned about a correct canon a correct list of works that he wrote through the Holy Spirit. Deuteronomy 4.2. Give you one in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament. 
starting in verse 1, Deuteronomy 4, 1. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you and do them, that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. God, very serious in the Old Testament. Don't add to it. Don't take away from it. Don't add to it. Don't take away from it. If God's that serious about not adding to it and not taking away from it, then we can trust that God sovereignly oversaw the collection of the Old Testament books and said, we're not putting anything in here. I'm not going to allow my church to believe that something is in here that, should, that shouldn't be in there. God's real serious about the canon. And he says, don't take away from it. And so I believe that God's very sovereignly oversaw that process to where he says, we're not going to lose anything. We're not going to lose a book of the Bible that's really crucial that needs to be there. And then my church is just stuck without it. God communicated to his people, don't add to it, don't take away from it. So I believe God sovereignly said, I'm going to make sure that nothing gets lost and nothing gets added that's not supposed to be there. Then in the New Testament, in Revelation 22, we see those same uh, same thoughts, that same mindset come out here at the end of Scripture. Revelation 22, verse 18 and 19. I warn everyone who hears the words of this prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. So Jesus kind of wraps up discussion on uh, the books here and says, don't add to it, don't take away from it. If you do, there's serious judgment that will be incurred by you because of it. So historically, we believe that Revelation was the last book of the Bible written. That it was the last book contained for us. It was the last book penned by God, the last inspired author. John, on his, you know, at the end of his life, he's in, he's in exile in Patmos. He's writing the last words that have been divinely inspired by God. He says, don't add to it, don't take away from it. So from me, from my perspective, I've looked at some of the ways that the Bible's been put together. I don't stay again on top of it. Because I believe in, in God's sovereignty, that he oversaw it, that he took care of it. If I'm, if I'm already faithfully worshiping a God that I believe is in control of everything, then I certainly believe he's in control of making sure that I have the right 66 books. Um, and so I don't spend a whole lot of time worrying about it. Um, because I've already put my faith and trust in a God who's revealed himself. He's certainly a God that can make sure that we find the right books. And that the right books get there and that we're not missing anything that we need. So um, just to kind of give you some of that information, how the Bible was put together to help you as you hopefully begin to study the Bible more and more. Now, kind of want to wrap up today by giving you an overview of Scripture, the flow of what God is communicating uh, through his word. So if you want to turn your notes over to the back, I'm going to give you kind of a timeline of Scripture. Then I'm going to pass out to you the timeline of the actual books of the Bible. Again, I think this is important because wherever you jump in and start studying the Bible, I think it's important to kind of see where that falls in God's overall story, what he's telling from Genesis to Revelation. Where's the Bible going? It's that progressive revelation. So if we're starting from the beginning, God creates with the, God starts with the creation of the universe. So the first big thing that happens is the creation of the universe. And actually, above that, if you want to write Old Testament, so we're clear on where we're starting. Old Testament. The Old Testament is all about promises made. The Old Testament is promises made. It describes God promising things to his creation. So there's a lot of promises in the Old Testament. Promises to Abraham and his descendants. Covenants that are made with David and Noah and Adam. Promises that are made. Things that will come in the future. So if we wanted to kind of describe the Old Testament, um, unfortunately it gets a bad rap because of the word old. It's, you know, sometimes it's seen as outdated. It's not necessary. We don't need it anymore. But it gives us a lot of God's promises. Promises that he makes. Promises about the history of Israel. Promises of the coming Savior. So we have the creation of the universe. Secondly, we have the fall of man. We have the fall of man. Then we've got God's judgment with the flood. What God's teaching us through the Old Testament 
is that every time God gives man an opportunity to be faithful to him, man fails constantly, over and over. Nobody can fulfill holy expectations that are placed on them. We see failure all through the Old Testament. God starts over and there's failure again. He starts over with, with Noah and his descendants and immediately sin is, is creeping back up and sin magnifies itself to the Tower of Babel, which we talked about earlier. Then we've got Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the timeline. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These guys are seen as the, the, um, the forefathers of the nation of Israel. God makes those initial promises to Abraham. He continues to promise things to Isaac. He continues to promise things to his son, Jacob. These are the fathers of God's chosen nation. Then after that, we've got the history of Israel. Kind of jumping way ahead. The history of Israel. Uh, that has the, the exile in Egypt. Exile in Egypt that lasted for 430 years. Then we've got the Exodus, which is 40 years. So all this is under the history of Israel. The exile in Egypt, 430 years. The exodus, which lasted 40 years where they wandered in the wilderness. Then we've got the conquest of the promised land, which was seven years. Joshua leads the nation of Israel in there, and they conquer Canaan for seven years. Then we've got the time of the judges, which is 350 years. Then we've got the time of the United Kingdom, not Great Britain, but the time of Saul, David, and Solomon. The United Kingdom, Saul, David, and Solomon, they lead the entire nation of Israel. Their kingdoms reign for about 110 years. Then we've got the divided kingdom. What's the names of the two, the two kingdoms? At the kingdom of Judah, kingdom of Israel. Kingdom of Judah, kingdom of Israel. So the nation splits for 350 years. We've got good kings and bad kings, mainly bad kings. Lots and lots of bad kings. Especially on the side of the uh, nation of Israel. Or the kingdom of Israel. Anybody know which tribes make up the kingdom of Judah? Judah and Benjamin. Hundred and ten. Seven. 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 Yep. Uh, then we have the exile in Babylon, which lasted for seventy years. This is. God, God continues to call his people to repentance. They continue to wander and worship idols, worship false gods, stray away from God's commands. They're not being obedient. So God eventually puts them into exile in Babylon. This is where we have uh, Nebuchadnezzar. This is where we have the Persians who come in and take over from the Babylonians. This is where we get Darius. We get the lion's den story. All that stuff takes place during the exile. Then we have guys like Nehemiah who are taking people back to the promised land. So the next thing in our timeline is the return and rebuilding of the land, which lasts for 140 years. Nehemiah goes back, rebuilds the walls. Hundred and forty years. Yep. Then there's that four hundred years of silence. That time between Malachi and Matthew. Where things are still happening. I mean, you know, there's still history that's taking place there. We just don't have divine revelation from God about what he wants to know during that time. Which is what makes, you know, it's so significant when, when Zechariah and Elizabeth hear about the birth of John the Baptist. I mean, we haven't heard from God in 400 years. 
promises were made, but when are these promises going to be kept? Like, when is God going to do what he said he was going to do? Because if you think about it, I mean, Israel is floundering in the Roman Empire. I mean, they're dispersed, they're spread out. You know, they're starting to wonder maybe, like, is God done with us? I mean, did, did our story come to an end? So when the angel shows up to talk to Zechariah about the birth of John the Baptist, I mean, that was huge. When Mary hears from, from Gabriel that, that Jesus is coming through her, that was huge because they hadn't heard from God in a while. Um, and they were used to hearing from God pretty regularly through the prophets, and God had just shut the mouth of the prophets and was not speaking anymore. So after that 400 years of silence, we come to the New Testament, which is promises kept. Promises kept. The coming of Christ, the establishment of the church, the recreation of all things. That's kind of the three themes that we see in the New Testament. The coming of Christ, the establishment of the church, and the recreation of all things. It's kind of how the New Testament's broke up. We've got the, the four Gospels that describe to us the coming of Jesus... Then we've got the book of Acts and all the epistles that tell us about the establishment of the church and how we're supposed to function as a church. Then we get the book of Revelation that describes to us how everything is going to be recreated, new heavens and new earth. So we, we start kind of in the middle. We go Christ, we expand to God's people, and then we expand to all of creation. It's in the New Testament that we get the, 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 the solution to the Old Testament riddle in Exodus 34, 7. Exodus 34, 7, God gives them a statement that seems very contradictory. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. So you have a picture here of a God who desires to forgive, but will not simply overlook the guilty. So, you know, you're left with this riddle of how does God forgive sin without, without, and still being faithful to the idea of not just simply clearing the guilty. Obviously, Jesus is the answer to that riddle. God forgives our sin by punishing Christ. He doesn't overlook the guilty because the New Testament tells us that our sin is transferred to Jesus. So sin still gets dealt with. Our guilt still, still gets dealt with. It's through the punishment and the wrath that's poured out on Christ on the cross so that our sins can be forgiven. So Jesus is the answer to that riddle of Exodus 34. New Testament promises kept. Jesus and the New Testament authors are constantly pointing to the fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Jesus is the temple. He comes and says, you destroy this temple, in three days I'll rebuild it. He presents himself as the true temple of God. Everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus. All the, all the pictures, all the analogies, all the things that God gives to his people is meant to give them a, a deeper understanding and appreciation for when Jesus shows up. He's the temple. He's the priest. He's the sacrifice. He's everything that the Old Testament couldn't provide for the people of Israel. We already referenced it before today, but Luke 24, 47, he's talking to those disciples on the road to Emmaus, and he says, let me tell you about the Old Testament and how it's all about me. It's all pointing to me. So Jesus is the promise kept in the New Testament. All the promises made in the Old Testament find their fulfillment in Christ. Real quick, just kind of a, a quick overview of the, of the New Testament. We've got the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Again, that's the coming of Christ. Then we've got Acts, which gives us the, the impact of the life, death, and resurrection on Jesus' followers. Acts is the other narrative in the New Testament. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's storytelling. Acts, storytelling, kind of progressing like a story. Then we've got the, the, the epistles that are letters written to churches. So the narrative kind of stops in the New Testament with um, the book of Romans. Now we just get doctrinal teaching about what the church is supposed to be about. So 21 epistles that tell us how to live until Jesus comes back. And then Revelation, everything gets fixed. 
All right, I'm going to pass out to you these sheets real quick. Um, I only ran 20, so we'll see how far they go because there's probably more than 20 people in here. I think there's 20 on this side. Um, so share them with your family if you've got more than one in your family. Some of you I know are going to take pictures of it maybe with your smartphone and make it a little file that you can use. Um, and I'm gonna, I'll am gonna post this on um, the city as well. So if you prefer the electronic version, then you can just say, hey, I'll get it offline. Um, huh? Front and back, you've got the Old Testament. Had a red hourglass on it. Is that a black widow? The only thing I would caution you about on these uh, on these charts is I'm not sure. I wouldn't say that the dates are necessarily accurate. So the way the books flow are accurate, I wouldn't trust the dates at the top. Because the dates at the top are going to be presented in kind of a theological understanding. Specifically in the New Testament. But what I mean by that is that depending on how you interpret the book of Revelation, it determines where you think the book of Revelation was written. So on this chart, whoever put this chart together um, obviously believes the book of Revelation was written after A.D. 70 which means after the destruction of Jerusalem. Depending on your perspective on Revelation, if you think a lot of that stuff's happened, then you're going to believe that Revelation was written before AD 70. So trust the, the outline of the books in chronological order. Don't necessarily trust the dates at the top of when they were written. Does that make sense? You can probably trust the Old Testament stuff. Yep. I got one more. Does anybody want this last copy? Kyle. Say that again. Uh, no. Yeah, I haven't exactly. Well, it's a secret to me, too, because I haven't exactly decided where we're going next. Um, so, again, today what I wanted to give you was kind of an overview of Scripture. Again, not because it's necessarily new to you, but I wanted to give it to you in a way that you could potentially explain it to somebody else. It is important as you start to try to study the Bible on your own to see where you're studying and how that fits into the overall story of God's plan. I think it is important for us to have a basic understanding of how the Bible was put together. So we looked at the Old Testament, why we think we have all of it, why we don't use the Apocrypha, which is a question that may would come up with a new believer. You know, why don't we use these books? Because I've heard other churches do. Um, and then why we believe we have the Old Test, the New Testament, uh, the criteria that was used in gathering the New Testament. And then again, just kind of looking at how God is serious about his canon. So I believe that we can trust that, that God has been faithful to preserve his word for us. And so we can trust that we have all of God's word simply because we serve a God that's worth trusting. Um, next week, again, what I'd like for us to do is uh, do an overview of every New Testament book. So what I want to do is, is walk you through the differences between Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Why do we have four Gospels? Why do, why do some of them write about this and not write about this? What's their perspective? Why do we have four of them? Um, and then we're going to look at Acts all the way to Revelation. Who wrote each book? What's the major themes of that book? What's those books trying to teach? So that hopefully it'll give you some guidance as to which book to start studying. So that you don't just sit down and say, okay, I'm here in Adam. He tells me I need to be in the Word. I'm just going to pick a book and start studying it. That you've got some rhyme and reason for why you're doing that. Um, so hopefully we can kind of apply some of this stuff next week and figure out where we're going to start studying as individuals uh, moving forward. Be a little bit more relaxed next week. We'll do some uh, more discussion there at the end. Um, we will probably split up into groups and talk about our pink cards and our green cards and what we want to do and what we need to do moving forward to get everybody into the pink. Um, so we'll look at that some next week in the context of our C groups because the following week, um, we're going to be at Anna's hanging out, swimming and, and whatnot. So it's a C group day, but not a typical C group day because we won't do a lot of discussion that week. So we'll kind of teach next week and incorporate some of our C group discussion into next week um, as well. All right. Any questions about what we've talked about today?
All right, hopefully that's helpful for you as, um, again, you're trying to apply what we're learning about studying God's Word together. All right, I'm going to close this out, and then um, you guys are free to hang out and be dismissed. I know a lot of you will be spending time with family today to celebrate Mother's Day. I encourage you to uh, be faithful with your families today as you may be interacting with people that are not believers. Use this as an opportunity um, as much as you can to portray Christ to them uh, simply in the ways that you are able to spend time with them today. Let's pray together. God, we do thank you that uh, you are a sovereign God who is in control of everything. That nothing happens in history that's not uh, according to your will and not allowed by you. And so, Father, we're thankful that as we strive to be people who study your word faithfully, that we can trust in the fact that you have kept your word preserved for us. We can read in Scripture how you were very intentional to communicate revelation to prophets, to uh, different individuals who wrote down your word. And so, God, we're thankful that we can trust today that you have overseen that entire process, that you didn't allow men to write their own opinions about things, that instead you oversaw the process, you breathed into them through the Holy Spirit your words. God, we're thankful for your word this morning. God, I pray that we would understand the weight of responsibility that we have to know it. That you have gifted us and and provided so many privileges for us to have a Bible that has all 66 books in our language. Because, God, we recognize this morning that people like the Stapletons continue to work and labor to get the Bible translated into the languages of other people. God, help us not to dismiss the fact that we have all 66 and we've had all 66 for a long time in the English translation. God, help us to know it. Help us to be better at knowing it. Help us to take responsibility to know it. God, I pray that you would equip our people to study and grow on their own. Father, I pray that they would be open and receptive to mature believers who want to teach them how to do that. Because, God, I know we've got... People in our church who feel like they still need to grow in that area, still need to have somebody teach them how to study the Word. And God, I know we have people in our church who feel qualified to do that. And so, Father, I pray that you would use mature believers in our church to teach those that are still young in this area how to grow up in their faith, how to feast on the meat of your Word. We thank you so much that we have the opportunity to study your Word individually, that we don't have to rely on a pastor to teach us the word because it's in a language that we don't understand. God, I'm thankful that we can gather in the context of the local church and study it together. So, Father, I pray that you would use your word to change us each day, conform us to your image. God, I pray that as we leave today that you would use our church, use us as individuals to expand your kingdom as we wait anxiously for the return of Jesus. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Came flesh and the light shined among.